Welcome to Cracks in the Cement, where we dig into the ways colonizer culture surrounds us, how it got here, and where we want to go from here. Hi, welcome to episode three of Cracks in the Cement. My name is Robin and I'll be your host. Thank you so much for being here and for listening and I hope that you are all healthy and if you're in the summer season as I am, um, I hope you're getting some enjoyment in these last days we have of the summer season. So for today, or for this episode, what I want to share with you all um, is what I've learned over the last few years in researching the history of white supremacy or colonizer culture looking at the history of where it grew out of and what makes it unique and different from other systems of oppression. Um, We'll start back with the ancient Greeks and work our way up to modern day, thinking about how basically the colonizer gaze and system of judging others and categorizing how that can come through our sight today and just how we might practice using our eyes in a different way. So that's what I want to share with you all today. And if you stick around till the end, I'm also going to share some of the thoughts you all had. Some of you all wrote in to me on your ponderings regarding the U.S. white culture aspects from that Smithsonian resource. Um, And if you're interested in getting in that conversation, the, all the information on how to look at that resource is in the po- the episode description here. So thank you. Um, so getting started, I want to kind of give a basic summary as far as what I found. First, I'm going to offer a little background on how I started researching this. I've been in a lot of groups that are for white-bodied people to go through the Me and White Supremacy book by Leila Saad. It's kind of a workbook book. And in those groups, every now and then somebody would ponder, why is it called white supremacy and not human human supremacy? Isn't oppressing others just what humans do? Isn't that just a human thing? And I kind of just kind of brushed that off for a while because it seemed pretty clear to me why it was called white supremacy. But one day there was a really who I found to be an extra thoughtful, caring person who asked that question again. And whoa, maybe you can, my recycling is getting collected. Um, and so that person, it kind of made me stop and think, oh, I don't actually really know why it's different or how it's different. And so I decided to start digging around. So that's what I um, want to share with you all. And what I learned was that the ancient Greeks are credited with being the first culture where the people, the um, the ruling class, I guess I could call it, the controller people, they were the first to come up with a system where they categorized people based on physical characteristics as being either closer to God or further away from God. And so I learned that they invented a bloodline, a supposed bloodline ancestry that led to them of these kind of superhuman godlike people who are called the Hyperborea. And that's another unique aspect that ancient the ancient Greece or ancient Greek 
rulers, I don't know what, what's a better word to call them, the controllers, the oppressors. So they invented this bloodline supremacy that shows up in their, supposedly shows up in their facial features as evidence that they're the ones who are the strongest, the smartest, the healthiest, the ones best equipped to rule or to make decisions for the community. And then you also see some evidence of the first equating of whiteness, like light skinness, with being godliness or being good. Um, so that's where that's where some of the first evidence of that system of white supremacy comes from. And with those categories, not only was those were those facial or sorry physical features in general supposed to give evidence of what people were capable of, those physical features would give people either access or no access to resources. Basically like a caste system rooted in physical characteristics. So that was a unique thing. And even the creating the invention of there being these really um, distinct groups of people these distinct categories that that relates to the sort of purity or that was also new. So the European colonizers took that idea and they changed the lie. Instead of it being the Hyperborea people, they created this fictional, these fictional ancestors of the Aryan people who were supposed to be godlike, healthiest, strongest, smartest, so they claim that as once again having facial features connected to that mythological ancestral line that gave evidence that they were the smartest, the strongest, and the healthiest. I would, or I would say that the current version of that, first it was Hyperborea as the fictional bloodline of supremacy. It went from the Hyperborea to the Aryan and now where we find ourselves in the US, I would say it's this myth of the founding fathers or the settlers and how if you are, you have a story in your head that you're descended from those people that you're superior over other people and that it is your place to quote unquote civilize, develop, that it's their, their, right, their rightful place. And to go back to the colonizers, they were their main jam. And the thing that I've been trying to be more aware of in my self-practice being aware of how I do that is their main jam is to look at things, judge it, categorize it. And then for anyone who has power, put people either below a, or like within the in-group, there's sort of like a hierarchy of how close they are to the top people, the ones who are relate, supposedly related to these godlike people. So one of the things that I learned, examples of what the colonizers would do that feeds into this, so stories that we were told in school of like, for example, the Indian caste system or the Rwandan civil war that ended in a horrible slaughter, mass slaughtering in the 90s. 
we're kind of, I, at least in my schooling, I was kind of fed this idea of like, that's just who those people, those people are. And then I learned that it was really because of the colonizers that those things are like that the caste system is the way it is or that the Rwandan civil war even happened. So with Rwanda, the British colonizers in the 1800s, they decided that the Tutsi and the Hutu were these distinct groups of people, like a very clean cut, distinct ethnicities, different ethnicities. And they decided that the Tutsi people would be the in-group people and the Hutu would be the out-group people. And then the Belgian colonizers, when they came, starting in the 1930s, the the original people had to show an ID card that stated if they were either Tutsi or Hutu in order to get access to schooling or just access to resources. But the thing that's really twisted is, that's extra twisted, is it was the Belgian colonizers that would measure their noses, measure their bodies, decide by looking at them if they would have Tutsi or Hutu on their ID card. And so in thinking about that and thinking about borders that colonizers put in land. So if you think, if we think about ethnicities, territory, like different areas of land, that was all, it was all these continuums and overlaps and the colonizers come in, put in a line that divides categories of who people are supposed to be, where people are suppo- supposedly are as far as territory goes. That was their that's their pattern. That's what's happened all over the globe. And then the other example I learned about is in India in 1900, it was the British colonizers, the census bureau that supposedly organized and um, brought from chaos into order the caste system and there's a whole chapter on physical characteristics of people and how that places them on certain caste levels. So those were, it was the British colonizers who created the caste system that I learned about in school. So thinking about our sense of sight, and I just took a, a wonderful class with my friend Ash Canty, who I would, they're amazing and I would take their class in a heartbeat regardless of it being my friend or not. But it was a class about honing our different senses. And those things are not, I don't take those practices as trivial, especially thinking about climate change. We, I don't know, none of us know where we'll be in a couple, a year or two, or I will, I feel like I'll be lucky if I can still live where I am right now in two years. We just don't know where we're going to be or what's going to happen. And a lot of people we see experience, have been experiencing that for a while. And so being able to tap into our senses, being able to feel into our body and practice healthy relationship with other people or other beings is really important. And it's about um, survival and quality of life. So I don't take it lightly and it's not in any way a like a spiritual bypass kind of thing to me and to the people that I'm attracted to being around. It is an absolute part of our future and survival. So in thinking about, it's been making me think about our different senses, how they can be sort of, you know, plugged into different parts of our body. So with eyesight, 
it can be used for vigilance, like for safety. And we can feel how that's plugged into our, like our reptilian brain, our nervous system. Um, and I, and these aren't one, you know, it's, and here's a great example of me wanting to be really careful, not falling into the slippery slope of these just being distinct categories. And that's the end. There are a lot of different things that impact all of these and there's overlap. So thinking about vigilance for safety, that kind of goes into our reptilian brain and definitely into our body, our nervous system. And then thinking about how we can, our sight can have sort of like a softness quality if we really look at our surroundings, really look at ourselves with appreciation and love, if we're looking at the plants around us or the trees or the sky, where you just really, you really feel that in your heart, I've, you know, that when we're connected in that way. So it's kind of like a softness of feeling into the kind of miracle of life. And that I can really feel like in my heart and my chest, sort of like a radiating feeling which can almost feel overwhelming, like you want to explode because it's so wonderful and amazing. And I feel like the colonizer gaze that can come through our eyes fittingly is very much in the brain. It's very cognitive. It's assessing with sort of a checklist of is, is something good or bad. And if it qualifies for myself or another another person or a plant being or whatever being as being valuable, worthy of love, worthy of belonging or not. And so it feels very, you know, I can feel that it feels very cut off from the body. And I know I haven't invented that. I mean, I've heard people talk about it, but I can really feel that. And there was a time when I, I felt really locked in my head, like I wouldn't be able to get out and that colonizer gaze really lives up there. And also, I feel like the colonizer's gaze will accept where people have been placed on that sort of caste hierarchical, hierarchical social ladder. So the colonizer gaze goes, yep, that makes sense. The colonizer gaze might make a, somebody who's been more marginalized feel like imposter syndrome and that's the colonizer's gaze that goes yeah I don't deserve to be in that place yeah I'm not I'm not smart enough I'm not strong enough I'm not healthy enough whatever it is it's the colonizer's gaze that tells us that colonizer's gaze will help will like try to tell us based on visual assessment who is valuable enough for our time for us to listen to for us to deem as worthy so i've been practicing this sort of softening of my eyes and trying to see with my heart when i look at my body i'm i am 48 years old and i'm definitely seeing some changes in my body my skin where it's like you know getting i can see my skin aging i can see evidence in my face I don't like to be in pictures like I used to like to be in when I was younger because I look at the picture and I'm like that's not what I look like but that's really rooted in the colonizer's gaze where it's like I was socialized as a girl I was socialized as a female or as a woman and I look down at my body and I'm like oh my god will I still be considered valuable and then also as a white-bodied person, I also have to be very aware of how the colonizer's gaze 
will make can make me feel like I am more valuable because I'm white bodied. And so I know that I need to practice humbling myself when I feel like I have something I really want to say, which is kind of funny because I'm doing this podcast, but or and when there's something I really want to say in a group of people really thinking, really being aware of, am I finding myself? Am I overvaluing myself because of what I look like because of my age, my able-bodiedness, whatever. I also want to be really, really conscious of, as somebody who's deemed by the world as is seen as a woman, and so legitimately can be dismissed and not taken as seriously, or you know, not listened to or mansplained to, that I need to be really careful to not use that false narrative of this bloodline supremacy of that kind of like, do you know who I am? You know, and I feel like that's sort of the archetype of the Karen. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I know some people really don't like that term. And I acknowledge it could definitely be probably as rooted in some misogyny, but it is a helpful schema for communication. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. And as somebody who is a white bodied seen as a woman, I just want to be really careful that I don't plug into, well, I've been oppressed and don't you know who I am? I come from these godlike people, so you better listen to me. And I think that's what's coming through with the the Karen archetype. I also have been practicing softening my gaze when I'm riding my bike around or when I'm walking around being less focused on humans and more focused on trees and individual trees as characters, their own unique personality and focusing on them more, not being so human centric and just loving how I interpret their personalities and their wildness and flowness and listening to them because that's another thing that will help us in survival as climate change and who knows what else civil unrest happens and those are so tied into each other you know i mean there's no way with climate change that there won't be some civil unrest and we need to learn to pay attention to the messages that other beings give us and we'll talk more, or I'll have future episodes that'll talk more in more detail about some of those things as far as the colonizer gaze goes. And I'd really like to do an episode soon talking about gender specifically. So thank you for listening to all that. And now I'd like to share some of um, that which you all shared with me uh, regarding the aspects of white culture in the U.S. and your experiences with them. One of you all wrote into me well it's my friend so actually she texted me but after looking at the um the aspects of white culture in the u.s she wrote i've had curiosities in the past about how i fell into the family dynamic one husband wife and two kids where he works more and i'm home more but i also work and do home life I wasn't someone who wanted kids when I was young as I knew how hard they are to raise based on my sister's experience. So I'm still shocked to find myself here some days. And this made me really think about, and thank you so much for sharing that. I think I definitely find myself falling into those patterns where I'm like, wait, what am I doing? Something that I find really interesting 
in this is how comfortable the other person is. Part of that, it, it brings me back to that the ancient Greeks where it's their rightful place because they're the superior people. So therefore they can feel, I mean, I'm not saying my friend's partner is dehumanizing her, but there's just sort of this pattern of like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, that you're, you do that for me or you do that. And I don't make dinner. Or if I do, I'm not, I'm not going to, it's not going to be very healthful where there's this sort of kind of trying, but not really doing it. I find that really interesting. And I feel like that kind of plays into this sort of mansplaining or white splaining phenomenon where it's like, if you think you come from this superior place, that it's natural for you to explain things to people or relax, read a book, read the paper, whatever, while your partner makes the food. And there are lots of different variables that play into that. And But just thinking about how we can just kind of find ourselves in those roles and just be like, wait a second, how did I end up here? And then thinking about how am I, do I ever do anything like that reverses the power structure to other people in my life? Another person shared, and this seems sort of related as far as not having consciously chosen something, but just, well, I mean, that's, I guess, sort of the whole purpose of this is to become conscious, but we can just sort of find ourselves in a position, not necessarily consciously valuing it. So somebody shares, instead of value and prioritize, I would say I am most beholden to individualism, rigid time schedule, avoiding intimacy and conflict, showing emotion, and the work ethic. And and they're referencing the Protestant work ethic in that document. Um, and they say, I don't intellectually value these things, but they feel inculcated. At one point in my life, I worked very hard at learning not to show emotion. So thinking about the what we do to survive as well. There was another person who shared that they hear their father's voice in their head, you know, keeping them in line with those white culture aspects. And that same person also shares how it feels in their body. They describe as a teeth clenching and a bracing, a tautness in the body when I think about them. I can really relate to that. And then they also share, it is painful to watch my grown daughter struggle with the wealth equals worth value and be stuck in planning her future at the expense of her present. Boy, you know, talk about finding yourself in a position, you know, like my friend who finds herself in this family structure that she didn't necessarily consciously think she would ever be in. Then also watching our children who maybe we've shaped in a certain way, trying to help them survive in the world. And just, um, yeah, watching that and having those conversations with them. It's, it's no small feat. As I say goodbye here, I just want to say thank you all for listening. I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can, if you have my text, you can text me. If you have my email, you can email me. There's a Google form. There's a link in the description. I would love to hear from you all. Are there any ways that you think you've internalized imposter syndrome that holds you back from doing that which you really want to do? What piece of the puzzle, if you think of our community or the world community, your town community, whatever, 
what piece of the puzzle are you? Like, what is your role here? What is your, what would you do now? Let's say if you were not constrained by those aspects of white culture, if you didn't have to worry about in-group, out-group stuff, what would you do? I would love to hear that. So thank you for listening. And I will put that invitation in the description of this podcast. What would you do? Who would you be if you didn't have imposter syndrome or if you weren't constrained by those white culture aspects? Okay, thank you. Bye.